0: Thank you for remaining standing for the honor and the hearing of the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord... We do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we ask that you grant your Holy Spirit to illumine the preaching and the hearing of your word. Help us to understand the life-giving truth of your word and draw us closer to Christ as we do. Where our faith is weak, strengthen the faith that is itself a gracious gift from you, as we see more clearly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For it is in His victorious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you recall... We are working our way through the I am's of Jesus, and our text this morning opens with let not your hearts be troubled, as the Lord speaks to his disciples. No doubt, the first question that should come to mind as we read that statement is, why? Why would their hearts be troubled? And so this is our cue, that we need to back up a little bit and see what is going on in the narrative That John is revealing to the reader. As we work our way through and are in the midst of this short series on the I am statements of Jesus found in John's Gospel, we remember that in John 6, we considered Jesus as the bread of life. In John 8, Jesus declared that he is the light of the world. In John 10, we encountered two of these statements I am the door of the sheep. And I am the good shepherd. And last week, we looked at Jesus' statement in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Where in the context of that statement, Jesus provides a real-life illustration as he raises his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. This event occurred about a week and a half before the celebration of Passover, which is where we find ourselves in today's narrative. As we continue to remind ourselves of where we are in John's account, in chapter 12, we read of Jesus having supper with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, along with his disciples. This is where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the expensive oil of spikenard and and Judas Iscariot objects. It is also in chapter 12 where we have an account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is also told and accounted for in the other three Gospels. In chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples and those around him that the time has come for him to be glorified. And that even as a grain of wheat must be sown in the ground to bear much fruit, so must the Son of Man die and be lifted up in order to draw all peoples to Himself. And then in chapters 13 through 17, we have an account of what is often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. As you recall, the Upper Room is where Jesus gathered with His disciples for the Passover meal, And it is where he instituted the Last Supper. In chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, modeling for them an example of what it means to be his disciple, that they should do likewise and wash one another's feet. For as the servant is not greater than the master, neither is the son greater than the father. It is also here that Jesus identifies Judas, is the one who would betray him. Upon being identified as the betrayer, Judas bolts from the room, leaving the other disciples troubled. And it is in the midst of this upper room discourse, this intimate meeting with Jesus' disciples, that we find our text in John 14. And leading up to 14, chapter 14, we read at the end of chapter 13, the following, beginning at verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, The rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. As Jesus is revealing to his disciples what must come to pass they are struggling to understand the fullness of what he is telling them he had previously hinted at his death and even explicitly told them but they weren't ready yet to hear and here's just a few of those times to consider Jesus answered and said to them destroy this temple and in 3 days I will raise it up John 2:19 But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And one more, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day, Luke 9.22. So as the upper room discourse continues at the end of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 16, Jesus continues to tell the disciples things they need to hear and know in order to be prepared for the ministry they have been called to, for laying the foundation of the church and establishing his kingdom here on earth. They learn of the work of the Holy Spirit as helper, teacher, and comforter who is to come. They learn of the indwelling of the Father and the Son, the need to abide in Christ and to love one another. They hear that they will be hated and rejected by the world and must suffer much persecution. He assures them that though there will be tribulation, he has come to overcome the world and that he has overcome the world. And in chapter 17, he concludes with the high priestly prayer, glorifying the Father, praying for the disciples, and praying for all those whom the Father has given him, who will believe upon Christ by the proclamation of the word. And so it is in this flow of revelatory information, an exposition from Jesus, where they have just seen Judas Iscariot Leave And Peter has asked and proclaimed, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake, upon which Peter is told that he will deny Christ three times. It is here that we find these comforting opening verses in chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Jesus had just said to his disciples, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. Peter, in his confident enthusiasm, is ready to follow Jesus wherever it is his master is going, but learns that his confidence in Christ is not yet sufficient, for he will deny his master. So Jesus turns from speaking directly to Peter and addresses all the remaining disciples knowing that the disciples are anxious and apprehensive at what he has just said, he tells them to not let their hearts be troubled. We know what it is like to have troubled hearts, do we not? We've experienced a troubled heart. We probably often experience troubled hearts. When I first heard the other day that Sam and Luke had been in an accident on Friday, Friday evening on the way home from work, there was a moment of apprehension. Was Luke hurt? Was Sam hurt? What about others? And then word came that everyone was okay. And the troubled heart that I briefly experienced was settled. Thanks be to God, all were well and there were no injuries. No more troubled heart. Jesus is here, beginning to provide the information the disciples needed, so that they could understand and overcome their confusion and anxiety. He is going to prepare a place for them in his Father's house, for there are many mansions, many dwellings there, and he has work to do in order that they may be received. If he leaves and goes there, they may be certain of the work he is about and also be certain that he will return and receive them as his guests, or rather, as his permanent family members. He is not speaking of a metaphorical place. This is a reality that is being spoken of, a real place that Jesus is now preparing to go to. This is to be received by the apostles with as great comfort to them. And besides, they already know at some level, where it is he is going, and how they are to get there. But their understanding is still dark. Things are not as clear as they would have them to be. And so Thomas speaks up with a question. Thomas the skeptic. Thomas the doubting one. Thomas, who when Jesus indicated it was time to return to Bethany to see Lazarus, said... Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, who would yet say, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It was this Thomas who said and asked, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? implied in Thomas's question is an affirmation of the desire in all the disciples' desire to be with the Lord Jesus and to know how they may be with him and where he is going and Jesus responds with both a positive assertion and a negative denial which is the focus of the message this morning Jesus responds I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Positively, Jesus asserts that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is good. This is true and most helpful. But he makes it profoundly clear with the negative denial that follows that he alone is the way to the Father, for no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a crystal clear declaration that there is only one way to our heavenly Father, and it is through His only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus, the Christ. There are not two ways to the Father. There are not many ways to heaven. The way to heaven is not like multiple pathways along the side of a mountain, all of which lead to the top of the mountain. Have you heard this one before? Have you heard that one before? That there are many ways and they all go up the side of the mountain to the top? I remember hearing this very illustration in a Sunday school class many years ago. This class was being taught by, and these words were spoken by, the associate pastor. People of God. The lie is out there. It is everywhere and it has promoters and purveyors in the least suspecting places. We must cling fervently without swerving to the whole trustworthy, inspired, inerrant word of God. To yield at this point is to make our Lord a liar and to pave a perfectly palatable road to hell, to all who would believe such a lie. I know that I am preaching to the choir, but we have big hearts. We don't want anyone to die and go to hell. We want all of our loved ones to be welcomed into the arms of Jesus when they die. It is that time of year when many of you will be coming together with your family and extended family to celebrate Thanksgiving And Christmas. There is that aunt or uncle, niece or nephew, or maybe even mother or father or brother or sister who you know has embraced this lie. They claim the name of Christ. They call themselves Christian, perhaps, but their hope is in a false gospel. Which is no gospel at all. The topic comes up, as it so often does at these gatherings. You don't want to make waves. You want to be winsome and not be ostracized. After all, look at all the trouble everyone has gone to in traveling here and preparing the food. But the question is can we, as faithful Christians, let the lie just float in the air? and be caught by our children and our weaker brothers? Is there a way to gently but boldly cling to and promote the truth that Jesus here proclaims? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through me. No one, not a single good-hearted, well-meaning, clean living soul will see the Father by any means, but through the Son. Do we know this? Do we believe this? Do we love our neighbors and our family members such that we can tell them this truth, the true truth? It is hard at times, but it is eternally important. I am not promoting debates or dissension at holiday gatherings. Don't hear that, please. I am exhorting us to courage and love. It is something to think about and something to prepare for. Jesus continues his response to the disciples in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. There is a note of rebuke here in Jesus' response. He is no doubt getting their attention in these words. The disciples had been with Jesus for three plus years now and have declared their allegiance. They followed him wherever he went. They sat at the feet of the master and learned of the great and profound truths of creation and the father's work throughout all of redemptive history. And yet they still didn't know him as he truly is. As Calvin puts it, they have not known him rightly because they have not seen the living image of God in him. If they had been paying closer attention, he seems to imply, they would have known by now that his kingdom is not of this world, that he came down from heaven and therefore must return to be with his father, that in knowing him, they would also know the father as if to confirm what he had just said in telling them that they already knew where he was going and they already knew the way, he says, from now on or henceforth, you know him and have seen him. You have to wonder, do they not recall his words in the temple just just a, a little while back? My sheep hear my voice, he said, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. As further evidence that the disciples really don't understand what he is teaching them, Philip says, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Matthew Henry observes, as Philip speaks it here, it intimates that he was not satisfied with such a discovery of the Father as Christ thought fit to give them, but he would prescribe to him and press upon him something further and no less than some visible appearance of the glory of God, like that of Moses and the elders of Israel. Let us see the Father with our bodily eyes as we see thee, and it sufficeth us. We will trouble thee with no more questions. Matthew Henry put it well. And so beginning at verse 9, we read Jesus' response to Philip. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else? Believe me for the sake. Of the works themselves. It was this Philip who had already declared way back in John chapter 1 verse 45. We have found him whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph. It is this Philip who uttered these words. Right after he was called by Jesus. From the very beginning. Philip believed. And yet his belief. His belief was not yet full. He had traveled with Jesus. He had heard his teaching. He had even witnessed miracles. And yet, and yet he asked Jesus to show him the Father. What would we have done in that situation? Are we not like Philip and the others? How are we like Philip and the others? If we are not diligent to enter into each day and take off the old man and put on the new, if we fail to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus, to live in the constant awareness of the presence of God and to be thankful to him and to be content in every situation, are we not in danger of complacency and of false assurance? of being a part of a gospel-hardened generation. Do you know what I mean by gospel-hardened? We sit under the preaching of the Word each week. We saturate ourselves with wholesome Christian literature, music, news, and entertainment, and this is good. But let us not grow dull of hearing Let us not grow dull of hearing the good news or lose our zeal for the whole Christ and so become like that salt that has lost its savor, being no longer good for anything but to be cast underfoot. We must understand our need for Jesus as who he is and who he has declared himself to be. Someone has written, If I had my way, I would declare a moratorium on the public preaching of the plan of salvation in America for one or two years. Then I would call on everyone who has use of the airwaves and the pulpits to preach the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the law of God until sinners would cry out, What must we do to be saved? Then I would take them off in a corner and whisper the gospel to them. Such drastic action is needed because we have created a gospel-hardened generation of sinners by telling them how to be saved before they have any understanding of why they need to be saved. Interesting words to ponder. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Do you hear the passion, the disappointment, the pleading in our Lord's words? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So now how can you say, show us the Father? The pain Philip and the others must have felt at these words. And then Jesus, though he knows the end from the beginning and knows the faith that they have and that they will have, asked this. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Surely these words from Jesus cut to the core. Sometimes we need hard words in order to have our blindness revealed. These words were loving, to be sure, but they were hard words to hear. They were the words the disciples needed to hear. He is preparing them for the most important mission work the world has ever known. They had to be equipped with the truth. They had to know He who created life held the key to eternal life. There could be no equivocation in their proclamation that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so Jesus continues. These words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. He calls the disciples to believe. He calls them to know that all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to him by the Father. He calls them to remember the miracles that they have witnessed and to let those works testify of the way, the truth, and the life of the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. And once they begin to believe, for they must believe, Jesus now begins to unfold their mission. The mission that will commence once He returns to the right hand of the Father the mission that will consume the rest of their lives and cost them their lives, save one, the author of this gospel. Scripture doesn't say how the apostle Peter died, but according to history and church records, Peter was crucified and suffered a martyr's death. Tradition holds that he felt unworthy to die like Jesus when he was crucified and requested to be crucified upside down. The apostle Andrew, Peter's brother, was like most of the apostles as he became a missionary to different parts of the world. Andrew took the gospel to what is now modern-day Turkey, and later he was flayed and then crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. The apostle Thaddeus, sometimes called Judas, son of James, was apparently martyred around AD 65 by an axe, most likely beheaded in the Roman province of Syria. The Apostle Matthew's mission field was Ethiopia. While in Ethiopia, Matthew was arrested and impaled by stakes in the ground, and to make sure he was dead, he was beheaded. The Apostle Bartholomew, also called Nathanael, was sent into Armenia, modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, where he was martyred, being flayed to death with a whip. Thomas, while laboring in the upper parts of India, was pierced in his side by a sword and died from the wound. Philip was impaled by giant iron fish hooks and hung upside down to die. Church tradition holds that James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, was crucified at Ostrakine in Lower Egypt, where he was preaching the gospel. The Bible states that the apostle James was put to death by the sword, by King Herod in Acts twelve ten, And that typically meant beheading. The Apostle James' death is the only death of any of the Apostles recorded in Scripture. There's little evidence regarding the Apostle Simon, but tradition holds that he too was crucified. And not to forget Paul, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes that he knew his time was near. For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, he writes. Paul, the apostle born out of time, was beheaded as a martyr for the faith. The rebukes that Peter and Philip and Thomas received of the Lord were a part of their preparation. Preparation to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, and to suffer and die for that same gospel. This is not something we are equipped to do by a weak faith or an incomplete faith. And now, having delivered these hard, word, hard words to his disciples, Jesus is ready to encourage them in their work. Continuing at verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is not abandoning the apostles, leaving them to be easy prey for those who would thwart their mission, for we know that he is the good shepherd. He is granting them great power. Because Jesus is going to the Father, He is leaving them equipped to do even greater works than He did in His earthly ministry. He is granting them power on earth. They would heal the sick and raise the dead, even as the Lord Jesus did. He is granting them power in heaven, for whatever they ask in His name, Jesus will do it. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. As it has been said by others, he is the only way to God. He is the only truth from God. And he is the only life in God. Or if you prefer alliteration to help you remember, Jesus is the way of reconciliation. He is the truth of revelation. And he is the life of regeneration. Jesus has taught the apostles... And he is now revealing to them how they will be equipped in order that they might be encouraged. Their head knowledge is now being applied to the heart and will soon make its way to their feet. Beautiful feet that will carry the gospel. The Apostle John illustrates most appropriately how fully he understood this I am statement of Jesus when we read at the end of First John chapter 5. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And so I close with these words of exhortation from Alexander McLaren, a 19th century Scottish pastor who said of Jesus, He is your way to God. See that you seek the Father by Him alone. He is your truth. Grapple Him to your heart, and by patient meditation and continual faithfulness, enrich yourselves with all the communicated treasures that you already received in Him. He is your life. Cleave to Him, that the quick spirit that was in Him may pass into you and make you victors over all deaths, temporal and eternal. Amen. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, we are thankful for Christ our Savior, for in Him alone we find the way to You. We thank You for Your Word, which is ever true, for apart from Your Word we would not know our Lord. And we thank you for his life and for the life in him, the life we must know and the life we must follow, and the only life that leads to everlasting life. How very good you are to us in him. And so we pray for our friends and our family members and our neighbors who do not have a saving knowledge of Jesus. Equip embolden, and use us to share with all who would hear that life-giving truth found only in the good news of the gospel of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.